In Spanish, its name means the Meadows. You might know it as the entertainment capital of the world, Lost Wages, or simply Sin City. Of course, I'm talking about fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. On average, 42 million people visit Las Vegas every year, and I'm one of them. I love this city. The sights, the sounds, the shows, the people, the history. I want to share all of it with you. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 69 of the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast adventure to what I like to think of as the best city in the world, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Before we get things going for this episode of the show, I want to thank my guest from the last episode, Sergio Portizan, creator of the website Viva Las Value. It was great getting Sergio on the podcast once again, this time to talk about his experience of being in Las Vegas during the COVID-19 reopening phase. If you haven't checked it out yet, jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and search out episode number 68, Open for Business, or head to the website at jeffdoesvegas.com. All right, here we go. On to the show. The very first episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast was originally released all the way back on December 1st, 2018. When I launched the show, I was simply looking for a creative outlet and a way to share my love for Las Vegas. Through working on the podcast, I've had the opportunity to meet and talk to some amazing people, including entertainers, fellow podcasters, and other Vegas-related experts, and share these conversations with an amazing audience from all over the world who are just as passionate about Las Vegas as I am. 18 months, 68 episodes, and over 55,000 total downloads later, the podcast has become something bigger than I ever could have imagined, and it's been an absolute blast. As such, I thought it might be interesting to take a trip back through the history of the show and share some clips of some of my favorite podcast conversations. So I present to you the very first ever Jeff Does Vegas clip show. Enjoy. We begin with a conversation I had back in episode number 45 with one of my favorite Vegas people. I met Mark Chinook for the first time back in the summer of 2013. At the time, he was one of the leads in the show Rock of Ages at the Venetian, and I was set up to interview him for the radio station that I was working for back then. We bonded over being Canadian and a love of hockey, butter tarts, and all-dressed chips. And in the time we've known each other, he's become one of my closest friends. Mark always has a million different things on the go, from being the in-arena host for the Vegas Golden Knights, to hosting ESPN's top-ranked boxing, to producing shows at his venue, The Space. But I wanted to get him on the podcast to talk about his big passion project, a charity show he does called Monday's Dark. Monday's Dark is a 90-minute variety show where I get the top entertainers from the strip together. Anything can happen. And in those 90 minutes, we raise $10,000 for a local charity. And it's a different charity every time we do the event. And uh, it all started because Vegas is very red carpet happy. I tell this story a lot. They'll put out a red carpet for the opening of Applebee's in Summerlin. <laughs> you know, And as an entertainer in one of the strip shows at the time... It was in my contract and our 
our PR firm, you know, insisted that we show up to a lot of these events. And it became very like tiresome and I didn't like it quickly because it wasn't that I didn't want to support the event. I'd have to go to the Venetian at four o'clock in the afternoon, put on the costume, get in a car. They'd take me to the event. I'd take a picture on the red carpet and I'd leave. And I didn't really even know anything about the event other than I was there to take a picture. They're like, hey, there's that goofy guy from Rock of Ages, picture snap, and you leave. And I thought, man, there's got to be a better way for me to give back to the community than just showing up as the goofy guy in Rock of Ages because nobody even knew my name anyway. So what did they care? So my wife and I decided, hey, let's do this this thing called Monday's Dark. And it's what I said it is. It's just a 90-minute goofy variety show. And the name comes from the fact that Broadway is traditionally dark on Monday. So that's where the name came from. And uh, this December, we celebrate our sixth anniversary, our 100th partner, which means it's our $1 million night. Uh, you know, a hundred different local charities have received a party a partnership with us. And, uh, like I said, it, like you said, it's a, it's a passion project for me. It's just a way for me to stay focused on something other than a personal goal or a, a family project or anything. It's just, it's just a way for us to give back. And, uh, I know you've become friends with a lot of our team and a, a lot of the entertainers that have donated their time and talent and you get it. It's just a bunch of local kick-ass people who want to give back to Vegas and it's amazing how it's taken off it's just it's unbelievable and I'm so thrilled for December it's gonna be a lot of work uh, just because I want the night to be special and you only hit this million dollar mark once mm -hmm. and to think that we've done it you know charging twenty dollars because you know Monday's dark is 20 bucks mm -hmm. so every time we do a party it's 20 bucks to come to it and and we give a charity ten thousand dollars and we've we've done it a hundred times that first Monday's dark was not even close to what you really wanted to oh, it was put together, show. was it? <laughs> it was awful. Um, so I had a good friend of mine, Dot Marie Jones, come out. She plays Coach Beast on Glee, if there's any Glee fans listening. Uh, so Dot came out and Robin Leach, you know, everybody knows Lifestyles, the Rich and Famous, God rest his soul. Robin's no longer with us. But that first one, I thought, oh, I'm going to be deep and I'm going to sit down with these artists and we're going to have a conversation. Um, it was awful. <laughs> I think I, you know, I don't think I know. I read, uh, I read from the giving tree by Shel Silverstein cause I thought it would be artistic and, and moving. And I started crying and it was stupid. It was just absolutely <laughs> one of the most ridiculous things ever. However, we raised some money for a charity and that was just, you know, sometimes you just got to dive in and go. That was the dive in and go that first Monday's dark. And it's funny that I'm talking about it now because we're actually going to reference it quite a bit in the anniversary event in December. And uh, we're going to pay tribute to Robin. And uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's crazy. We, you, you try something, but half the time, if, you know, you just got to try shit. You just got to put it out there and yeah. you'll find it, you know, because there were, there were elements of it that were really great. And there were elements of it that were absolutely god awful. And those elements went away and we tried other things and, now Monday's Dark is what it is. It's primarily a variety show. With it's driven by music. There's a ton of com uh, comedic elements. It's adult themed, you know, for language and content. But you know, it's it's that old Vegas vibe where you never know who's going to show up and you never know what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, you're going to feel good about yourself because you paid twenty bucks and it went to a charity. And is it two years now that you've been doing this at the space? Yeah, yeah. We uh, we opened up our own venue, the place we're sitting in. And uh, it's a warehouse, 10,000 square feet right off the strip, one big block. And yeah, about three and a half years ago, three years into the six years now, I said, hey, it'd be cool if we had our own community center to operate out of. And by community center, I, it's a venue. You mm -hmm. know, it's a warehouse that we converted into a, a performance venue. But 
All of our charity partners have access to it to continue to use for fundraising. I do a commercial projects out of here where I'll produce shows and plays and bands and concerts. You name it, it's in here. If you want to rent it for your birthday party, you can do that too. There's a podcast studio in it. Obviously, we're sitting in it. Uh, there's two theaters. There's an 80-seat you know, old-school black box theater, New York style, and then our main room seats up to 300 and there's a piano bar lobby area that you walk through to get into any of it. So it's uh, it's been cool, you know. And like I said, it's it's sort of taken on a life of its own. Uh-huh. It's taken up a lot of my time running this business. But again, you're only as strong as your team, and I have an incredible team. My wife and I are giant museum nerds, and one of our favorite Vegas museums to check out is the National Atomic Testing Museum which takes visitors through the history of nuclear testing in the United States, and more specifically, in the state of Nevada. Back in episode number 43 of the podcast, I was joined by Michael Hall, the executive director of the museum. We covered a lot of ground in our conversation, but one of the more interesting parts of our chat was the positive effect that nuclear testing had on tourism for the city of Las Vegas, as well as helping to create what would become known as atomic culture. The first period of nuclear testing, where the bombs were going off above ground, was a very popular period. It was a very, uh, uh, it was a time in America where people were very patriotic and they wanted to do their their duty. And that was, was especially true in Las Vegas. Now, Las Vegas was still very much of a small community, but you're right. It, it, it started the the gambling and the tourist attraction appeal started to come in, in that time too. And during that period, it was the Atomic Energy Commission that oversaw nuclear testing. And they realized the PR value of it. And some of the tests, they invited participants. Uh, it got to the point where they actually advertised when the tests were taking place. And visitors to Las Vegas loved to go to the rooftops uh, in the early morning hours. And I say early morning hours because that's when most of the nuclear tests occurred, just before dawn. And that was because that was an optimal time to photograph the nuclear weapon. That's why they took place at that period. But people would go out and stay up late to watch these these mushroom clouds in the air. So it really it had quite the opposite effect of of what the fears might have been. Correct. Now, in contrast to that, the second period of nuclear testing, the underground period, that was not as popular. People couldn't see anything. Uh, Las Vegas had gotten much bigger by that period. The tremors from the underground testing occasionally crack foundations. There was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a different time period. You know, we, it, it was the period of, you know, the, the Vietnam War and uh, people started to question, you know, nuclear deterrence and if a nuclear war was even survivable. So it was a much different period uh, than the earlier, you know heydays of the mushroom clouds in the air and the earlier time really it really created this whole um kind of atomic culture as well which i found really interesting i mean all of the sudden you had all these atomic toys and atomic testing toys and miss atom bomb and you know all this kind of stuff it, it vegas really kind of this is the neat thing i've always found about las vegas is it really kind of embraces these interesting periods in its history and and just kind of it's almost like they figure out if there's a way to make money off of it or a way to commercialize it they absolutely do that was especially true in las vegas but it was a national kind of pop culture phenomenon at that time and again it goes back to the period when this was patriotic you know you were testing nuclear weapons it was part of all it actually became part of our national identity and i 
we have a neat, neat little exhibit in the museum on the pop culture period when, you know, you had atomic this and atomic that on everything you can imagine. And we do a lot of uh, contrast or comparisons today on our museum tour to North Korea. North Korea is the only country that still tests nuclear weapons, but they're very much where we were in the 1950s, not only in their development of nuclear weapons, but nuclear weapons in North Korea have become part of North Korea's identity. And the only way I can really convey that to our visitors is use the comparison of how it was felt in this country in the 1950s. You know, today, if you start talking about nuclear weapons, you'll, people will kind of frown. But back then, it was just a very gun-ho, proud thing. America had, they built the bomb, and they had the bomb, and they were testing the bomb, and we were it was going to defend us against any future war. Early on in the podcast, I had made a comment in one episode that in all my trips to Vegas, I'd never sat down and played a table game. No poker, no blackjack, no roulette, nothing. I admitted that it was for a variety of reasons. The main one being that I, quite frankly, had no idea how to play any of them. But I felt that in order to get the full Las Vegas experience and be taken seriously as a Vegas podcaster, I needed to get over my anxiety and just do it. So, I went on the hunt for an expert to help me out. Heather Ferris, the founder and CEO of Vegas Aces, joined me for a conversation way back on episode number 13 of the podcast. We began our chat with her advising me of the best, and in this case, easiest games for me to play to get past my fears and start playing table games. Blackjack, yes, is definitely the easiest. Uh, Big Six, which is the wheel where they turn the wheel and you try to get a number, that's also extremely easy. Mm -hmm. Um, However, Blackjack has a better house edge, so it's actually better for the player to play Blackjack than it would be to play Big Six. So I'll, I'll stop you. House edge. Definition, please. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. So the house edge is basically the money that the casino makes from you. Okay. So this is their winnings. This is their profit. This is what they make. So let's take something easy like roulette. Um, Roulette has a house edge of 5.26%. So if you go to a roulette table and you put $100 down on the table, then you are expected to lose $5.26. I believe, oh, I think it's per hour. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But it's, uh, as far as the time factor goes, I don't remember. But it's something to that effect. Um, So you're expected to lose that amount. So every single game has a different house edge. Um, Like I said, roulette has a 5.26% house edge. That's actually pretty bad for the player. Mm -hmm. And then the blackjack has roughly around 0.5% house edge. And that's much better for the player. So um, you want to go to a blackjack game that has an eight deck shoe. Um, The dealer can hit on a soft 17 and blackjack pays three to two. And if you do that, you're going to get a house edge of a roughly around 0.43%, which is really, really good. So um, just keep that in mind when you're playing a game. Um, If you go to a craps table and you play a proposition bet and that proposition bet is 16.67% house edge, it basically means you're giving your money away to the casino. So um, it just is something to keep in mind when you're really, really serious about gambling and you're doing it more for the fun of it. Okay. Now, the the question I, I have to ask, too, is 
with a game like Blackjack, uh, and and I assume that this was part of the reason that this guy that sat at my table, this troll that sat at my table was getting upset with me, was, you know, I'm I'm taking his cards, I'm ruining his strategy, I, all of these things. I got to ask, is there actually strategy involved in a game like Blackjack? Because in my brain, it's cards. It's 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 the luck of the draw, is it not? Um, I completely agree where you're coming from. I can see your point of view totally. But unfortunately, um, yes, there is a strategy. And if you read the book by Edward Thorpe, Beat the Dealer, then you will see uh, basically he explains everything. He's Edward Thorpe is the one that created the Blackjack Strategy Guide. And that's the guy, the little card that I was telling you about the book right. that you can use on the table. Um and he went through, he was a mathematician, uh, he did all of the math on this, and he figured out what is the best way for the player to play that gets them the best ha- uh, advantage. And so, yes, there is a strategy, and um, it is the book, or, you know, basically a book by Edward Thorpe. And if you read it, it's very, very interesting. It'll give you more insight on the game. He's one of like the big names in the industry and everything. So to answer your question, yes, there is a strategy. And that's who created it was Edward Thorpe. And that's what he created was the book. One of my favorite parts of doing this podcast has been being able to share various pieces of Vegas related advice with you, the listeners. And after seeing one too many people on the Las Vegas Strip fall victim to the dreaded timeshare salespeople, I decided I wanted to put together an episode to pass along some warnings about what to watch out for if you found yourself suckered into a timeshare presentation. Back in episode number 19, I connected with Lisa Ann Schreier, who goes by the moniker The Timeshare Crusader. Lisa passed along a ton of great tips on how to handle yourself and make sure you're not getting scammed or pressured into buying a timeshare property, including your rights as a consumer and an attendee of a presentation. Somewhere along the line, when you agree to go to this presentation, somewhere in writing that you signed off on, it says the minimum amount of time, or yeah, the minimum amount of time you have to be there. That I mean, that's it. If it says a 120 minute presentation, you are under no obligation to stay there three, four, five hours. That increasingly, I hear stories, especially from older people who, you know, come crying to me after, oh, I sat there with, they kept me there for seven hours. No, you allowed yourself to stay there for seven hours. Nobody had a gun to your head. Nobody, you know, for anyone to sit through a timeshare presentation for seven hours, I don't condone those practices. But again, the consumer has got to take some responsibility. Mm -hmm. After two hours, if you've given up two hours of your time, and that's what you're supposed to do, and you don't want it, get up and leave. No gift, whatever they're going to offer you is worth seven hours of your time. It's just, it's silly. I don't understand why people allow themselves to, to subject themselves to that. And, and you know what? I, I totally agree with you on that because I've heard those stories. And again, I've heard the stories and the horror stories from people that have been, you know, dragged in off the strip. And I've, I've even been going through some of the hotels in Vegas that have timeshares in them or around them. 
and where they're doing the presentations and you see the people getting walked away. And I just think, oh, my God, the tickets to the fantastic cat show magic extravaganza are just not worth your time. Like even even two hours of my vacation to give up so that I can go and, and sit and try and be pressured into purchasing a, a timeshare just to me doesn't seem seem worth it. Um and again, and and like you say, so people just they've got that legal right to just get up and leave after X amount of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one thing that I always tell people to keep in mind is do not ever hand over your driver's license and or credit card, because that's a ploy that more and more resorts are employing. They'll hold your credit card and or driver's license basically hostage to keep you there. Well, again, a smart consumer, I'm not handing over my driver's license and credit card to anybody. Why would you do this? Why would you let some stranger hold on to your credit card or driver's license while you're in a sales presentation? That's just, it. you know, again, do I condone those practices? Absolutely not. Does the consumer need to take some responsibility? Absolutely. From what it sounds like you're saying, it's it's using a little bit of common sense when you go into these things. Absolutely. And common sense, for some reason, um, you know, I've been writing about timeshares for nearly 20 years now. And for some reason, common sense seems to go out the window when you start talking about timeshare. Because what I always tell people is if you take away the word timeshare and replace it with the word automobile, You'd never do these things. You would never do these things. You would never buy a car after doing no research at all into average selling price or comparing a a Chevy to a Ford. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it after listening to the salesperson rattle on for two, three, four hours. You would never sign the dotted line without reading all the terms and conditions. But people seem to do this all the time with timeshares. It's like, you know, it, and, and understand, of course, the industry takes full advantage of that. The industry knows that most people, I, I don't like to use the word all, but let's say 99% of people who are at a timeshare presentation are on vacation. They're in the ether. They're trying to have fun. Their common sense many times flies out the window. Um, you know, I can tell you from many years working part time at Disney World at Walt Disney World here in Orlando, you know, people's common sense on vacation sometimes eludes them. Mm. So the industry is full aware of that. They take full advantage of that. One of my all time favorite shows in Las Vegas is Tenors of Rock. They've been performing their classic rock hits with a twist on the Vegas Strip for over three years, initially at Harrah's and now at Planet Hollywood. Through mutual friends, I've gotten to know one of the group's members, Jimmy Denning, quite well. Jimmy was kind enough to join me on episode number 35 of the podcast, where I made things awkward by informing him that my wife was totally in love with him, and he shared the story behind the reason for the group's addition of Broadway hits to their performances. That whole thing came about um, through David Hasselhoff. There was a segue you weren't expecting. No, Jeff. no, so not at all. This is the story. We had played little, tiny little gigs where we would dep 
we would sort of, sort of we would um, be invited to a charity event in London, and we would just do one song. So we worked for a month on one particular song, and we and we went and did it. And some of them were good, and some of them were bloody awful. But we were just doing this thing, and out of nowhere, I was never forget. I was in my dressing room doing Billy Elliot in London, and we were trying to get the tenors of rock to you know get, get some let's get some gigs and earn some money was was the was the first uh, ambition and out of nowhere i get a phone call off david hasselhoff now i had worked with david several times before and he phoned me and he said i'm doing a show at the o2 in london i need a girl to sing a big musical theater duet with me who do you recommend who do you know and with our history in that environment, and also my sister is quite a big name now in the West End. She, you know, is a, kind of a consistent lead in every show she does. You knew everybody. Now, normally, you would think, oh, that they would charge too much. But the novelty of singing in front of thousands of people at the O2 with David Hasselhoff <laughs> has, has a great allure for virtually everybody. Yeah. So we, we picked up the phone to a friend of ours, Louise Dearman, who was... Uh, very well known for being in leading Wicked and all this kind of stuff. And we said, Louise, would you like to sing a duet with David Hasselhoff at the O2? And before we'd even said anything about it, she went, yes, absolutely. That sounds hilarious. <laughs> so that was fine. But then uh, during that conversation, he said, look, and I'm also looking for a band to support me. And uh, I just jumped on it, being the hustler that I am. And I just said, but what about us? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm in this group called the Tenors of Rock. At the time, we were called the Rock Tenors. But... Um, and he said, do you want to come and... He said, do you want to do it? And I said, yeah. He said, there's no money in it, of course. It's exposure, of course, there is. But I said to the boys, I said, do you want to do this gig with David Hasselhoff? Do you want to, like... And uh, he said, look, I need 20 minutes. You do 20 minutes. And then maybe in... Uh, throughout the show, you just come and do some, some backing vocals. We were like, this is going to be brilliant. So we then sent him some of the stuff that we'd done. And David is a show business icon and legend and all that kind of stuff. And he's a little bit dippy and a little bit daft. But he is a heart of gold. And he's very honest as well. He knows exactly what he is and what he isn't. And he phoned me straight back and he says, that sounds amazing, but I can't have you boys going on before me. <laughs> no, no shit, that's what he said. And he said, look, he says, I, I, I'm just not having it. He said, it's just, you're great. He says, it's fantastic. He said, I wish you luck. He said, but this is my show and I've got to be the... I've got to be the star. And that's yeah. what he's made a career out of. And I totally respect that. And I said, no problem. So then I said, look, you're doing the first half of your show as, as musical theater. And the second half of, is all of his pop hits from Germany and all this kind of stuff. And I said, why don't we sing a musical theater song? Why don't we arrange a musical theater song? And he went, okay, if you can do that, then that gives me a chance to go and change a jacket. And he says, it's not really invasive on my show. So then we said, well, what do we do? We, we, we set this group up to get away from musical theatre and now we're being asked to do musical theatre. And he sent me through Bring Him Home or Music of the Night. And because Johnny had just spent seven years in Les Mis, he was like, I am not singing that song anymore. <laughs> so that's why we chose Music of the Night. So we literally went to music. We, 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 we got an, uh, our MD at the time who went through the whole stuff with us. We did an arrangement. We sent it to David. He says, that's brilliant. And we ended up premiering it at the O2 in London with David Hasselhoff um, basically 70% Germans in the audience yeah going absolutely crazy for him and uh, at that gig we actually got approached by a record company and they said does anyone manage you and he said no 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 we just we blagged our way onto this you know it was, it was very fortuitous and they said do you want to do you want to have a conversation and our manager at the time Gareth 
said, cool, yeah, I'll, I'll come and have a chat with you. And then from there, they get a little bit of money behind you. They put you in good uh, outfits. You know, they spend a bit of money on production. And that was the kind of start of it. You know, I mean, it was, like I said, rocky road. But since then, the music of the night thing has taken on a whole new thing because we do so much rock music. It's really funny, after the shows, the one song you get commented on, they always go, oh, I love that musical theatre song. And it always kind of sends a shudder down our backs because we can't ever take it out of the show now. In fact, we're looking at doing some other stuff because a lot of the people that come and see the show, they might like classic rock, but they do love the Broadway thing, you know? So I think we've we've made a decision that we'll always do one. Every set that we do, we'll always do at least one musical theatre song with a rock kind of twist to it so yeah that's the genesis of uh, music of the night being involved with Led Zeppelin and the Eagles Something I enjoy doing on occasion is putting a Vegas spin on a non-Vegas topic, which was exactly what I did in episode number 52 of the podcast. No matter how much we might not like to admit it, everyone is a bit superstitious. And that's on display big time in Las Vegas, whether it's a special gambling shirt, tapping the video poker machine buttons in a specific order, or refusing to use $50 bills because they are, quote, bad luck. I connected with Stuart Vise, a behavioral scientist who happens to be an expert on superstitions and irrational behavior. What I really wanted to know was, is there any actual science behind superstitions? Well, the, the short answer is no, uh, but the longer answer is that that uh, there could be, there, there's a potential for possibilities in very specific circumstances. And, and so now I'm speaking to your your Las Vegas audience, right? Uh, when I say that, you know, when you play the shot of the slot machine, any slot machine, you or you play roulette, uh, or any of the games that are purely chance, right, where you're not actually involved at all, uh, include, and I, I would put, although, I mean, obviously, for some games, there are betting strategies, even if they're pure, purely chance, like craps, I don't actually. I have. I confess, I don't understand craps, but but I understand it involves dice. Right? Yes, that much I know too. That's that's about as much as I know as well. <laughs> okay, so there's nothing you can do to make the die roll, you know, the way you want them to. Uh, that 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 is the scientific fact. Um, but the, but here's the here's the hedge on that, right? So so superstition will not help you in those contexts, and yet. And yet they're very common. You, you pointed, uh, just as an aside, you mentioned the, the people tapping the, the screens of the uh, slot machines and so forth. Um, the Bally people who make those, some of those slot machines, I don't know whether they've actually produced them yet, but they have patented a special kind of slot machine that would actually respond to those superstitious taps on the screen, that they would give some kind of a feedback in order to again to try to monopolize on that and, and encourage the the people to continue doing it this the idea being that people who who do that tapping and if they're rewarded it for it in some way that they'll keep playing they'll they'll play more so uh so it's not they, they're aware of this stuff but there's nothing there's nothing at a at a at a slot machine or a or a roulette table that that will help you now the if you are actually engaged in a skilled activity, and here I think the better analogy is theater or sports, not so much 
the casino. Um, but if you're engaged in a, in a skilled activity, um, it seems logical, at least it's, it's possible, right? It, it, there is a possibility that there would be a psychological benefit that the, that the superstition would give you, you know, a, a, a feeling that you've done something else that you've added to your, to your circumstances and that that psychological feeling would lead to better performance, right? Would lead to better, uh, better hitting on the ball field or batting or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so that seems logical to me. And a few studies have tried to show that. And I have to confess that the results have so far been mixed. I mean, that may be the fault of the scientists that they haven't, they haven't done the right kind of studies yet. But um, but so far we can't say for sure that even that even that works. So uh, so it's it's still an unanswered question. I would say there have been some positive studies and some negative studies. So so we shall see. But but there's no question. Like we, people are superstitious, right? And it's been going on for centuries. So something must support it. Uh, uh, my guess is that that it is the immediate feeling that you feel better doing it. Um, and whether that leads to better performance is still, we're not sure about that. One of my all-time favorite attractions in Las Vegas is the Pinball Hall of Fame. It's always ranked as one of the must-see spots in town, and it's a great and cheap way to escape the insanity of the Strip. And on countless trips, I've headed over and spent hours on end popping quarters into some of my favorite arcade machines. Back in episode number 49, I sat down for a conversation with Tim Arnold, the founder of the Pinball Hall of Fame. And one of the things that I asked him about was why Vegas was right for the Pinball Hall of Fame, and also why the Pinball Hall of Fame was right for Las Vegas. Part of it was technical. It's warm and dry. I can't scrape all the rust off these things just to have rust solid again. Uh, two, there's no state income tax. Um, uh, and also, it, it come to find out after I moved here, when I was in the Midwest, the politicians, the police, the licensing people, the tax assessor, all looked down at my tawdry little carnival business like I was some kind of a leper. They didn't want this pinball arcade in their college town because it wasn't fine art. It was popular culture and only thugs who had stolen auto parts hung out in arcades. That was the theory at the time. And then I get out here and it's 180 degrees different. The people in charge of the government, the elected officials and the bureaucrats all realize that in a tourist town you have to have tourist attractions and that this was just when uh, gambling opened up in places other than Nevada uh, and the, the powers that be realize that it's not enough anymore just to have a big barn full of slot machines. You've got to have something else for the tourists to do because pretty soon there's going to be gambling everywhere. So they started to realize that what we need in a tourist town is tourist attractions and they took one look at the thing in my backyard or the thing down the street and said this is what we want. We want this in our town. What can we do to help you? Instead of having 
a fire marshal walk down through my thing and issue me a ticket if I was one inch into my aisleway, uh-huh. what I got was, do you need help with uh, permit issues? Do you need help with zoning issues? How can we make this work? So come to find out, Vegas was the ideal place because the people in charge hear the music. Now, the really cool thing about this place, and, and coming here pretty much every time I come to town, and, and I'm here a lot, I, I make a stop here. This this is this is my childhood. Like, I'm sure you hear from a lot of people that, that come here. Right. I mean, I grew up in arcades, and, you know, this was this was where my parents sent me when they wanted me out yep. of their hair. Yep. And everything in here is playable, which is it's so cool. It's not just playable. It's genuine. It's not a simulation. It's not a reissue. It's not... ColecoVision's idea of Pac-Man it is the 100% genuine real Pac-Man machine with the original controls and excuse me, a tube monitor. There's a difference between flat screens and tubes they look different, the motion is different and any hardcore game player will stick his nose up at a flat screen and it's very difficult to keep 30 year old tube TVs working but we stick our neck out and continue to spend huge amounts of time and effort keeping the original games original. So it's like uh, a museum or it's, I I link it more to like Turner Classic Movies because when Ted Turner bought all those movies and everybody laughed at him and said, what are you buying that junk for? You, you, You bought a bunch of old black and white movies? Nobody wants that crap. Nobody's watched that in years, but Ted Turner used to watch movies late at night, and he was insulted by the faded TV prints that the local stations would run that were full of scratches, and the sound was bad, and it was interrupted by horrendous commercials, and the picture had been smushed up to fit in a TV screen, and everything with the experience was wrong. So he bought the movies, and he started up the Turner Classic Movies Channel, and he said, I don't care about marketing. I don't care about test audiences. I want a channel that shows movies in their entirety the way they were originally seen. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But this is the way I want it. And it drew a lot of people. Um, now he's a genius. He's, he's, you know, Superman. But what he did is realize that there was a need for people to relive their youth and he had it easy compared to us because if you have one copy of a movie you can endlessly you can clean it up on a computer adjust the color take the scratches out and it looks like new then you can take that and put it down time warner's pipes and 10 million people can see it on their cell phone or in their living room the problem with this stuff is it can't be digitized. Uh You can't play a simulation of a pinball machine. The physical ball will never be able to be replicated by an algorithm. Sorry guys, give up, it's never gonna work. So what you've got is I have the only physical specimens and I'm one of the few people that still has the knowledge to train a staff to tell them how to fix this stuff and continue this on if you wanted to start this up yeah you could probably find the game somewhere but how are you going to find the people that 
know how to fix them, where all the parts are stashed, um, on and on and on. So we're kind of a unique thing, and everywhere I go when I travel, it's the same thing in every town. It's the same motels and fast food joints out by the freeway. It's the same Kuwait City Park with benches downtown. It's the same little Route 66 museum on every town from Chicago to Santa Monica. It's manufactured culture being shoved down people's throats. You come into this place and it's completely ass backwards. It's not fancy. We don't have a big sign. We don't have a marketing program. What it is is an old auto parts store filled with pinball machines that we dug out of dumpsters and patched back together. That's not something you see everywhere else. So people look at this and go, wow, this is neat. There really isn't an entertainer more synonymous with Las Vegas than Elvis Presley. Everywhere you look, you'll see Elvis impersonators, Elvis tribute shows, Elvis sunglasses, Elvis t-shirts, Elvis posters, Elvis, Elvis, Elvis. And I mean, it makes sense. Beginning in 1969, Elvis sold out 837 shows over the course of seven years at what was, at the time, the brand new International Hotel. Back in episode number 42, Richard Zoglin, the author of Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show, joined me to talk about the iconic performer's time in the entertainment capital of the world. However, one of the more interesting parts of our conversation was surrounding Elvis's first stab at performing in Vegas. This was 56 when rock and roll was still very new and was considered teenage music. And then, you know, in Vegas, you had a crowd of gamblers, uh, mostly middle-aged nightclub goers, and this kid shaking his hips on stage. And this was before he even did the Ed Sullivan show. So he was starting to get attention. He had a hit song, Heartbreak Hotel, but he had not, you know, kind of gotten the cultural uh, um, visibility that he would let have just a few months later. So this was something brand new for Las Vegas, and it was uh, it just wasn't in the genre of, of traditional nightclub entertainment. So, you know, they just didn't know what to make of him. And the reviews weren't even that good. No, that was that was really the interesting part is people just really, they, they kind of crapped all over him, didn't they? Yeah. Well, you know, he was, this was something new. I mean, imagine if you remember, or, you know, read about back then, Elvis was causing almost riots, uh, you know, in live performing around the country, around the South. And when he went on uh, TV and shaking his hips, it was considered salacious and, and a, a bad thing for teenagers to watch. And when he went on Ed Sullivan, they shot him only from the waist up. So in Las Vegas, even though Las Vegas was a, a little, you know, a hipper town, I mean, they, people knew uh, what was going on. And <laughs> But uh, still, um, a young rock and roller like that was something new and uh, not, you know, just not part of the tradition of the nightclub tradition. And the Rat Pack members, uh, particularly Frank Sinatra, they were not big fans of Elvis. Yeah. Uh, Frank Sinatra in the fifties, when rock and roll came up, they, they started to threaten, you know, Frank Sinatra was the hot young singer back in the forties and early fifties. And, and now here the, this whole rock and roll revolution and, and Sinatra wrote a famous piece uh, article for a French magazine where he really badmouthed rock and roll, not Elvis specifically, 
but rock and roll, which he thought was just bad for kids and, and bad music. And it was, and Elvis, Elvis did take it personally. And, uh, I think Frank kind of came around when Elvis came back from the army in 1960, after two years away, his comeback was, of course, a big deal, his return from the army. And sure enough, it was Frank Sinatra that got him as, as a guest on his ABC variety show to make his first uh, TV appearance after his uh, his stint in the army. So Sinatra, I think he may not still have been totally sold on rock and roll, but he he knew what drew ratings and he knew that Elvis would be a big draw, which he was. Reading about that, that special that Frank Sinatra put together, though, I found it interesting the way it was sort of billed as an Elvis comeback special, but Frank really still kept the spotlight on himself, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. He had uh, some of the Rat Packers on the show with him, uh, Sammy Davis and and uh, Joey Bishop. Uh, it was it was clearly Frank's special, and Elvis actually was only on for about ten or twelve minutes. And but you know he was the big draw. But I think it was a way for Frank Sinatra to say you know just to to remind people that I'm the big dog here. These, this, this guy might be a little flash in the pan and I, I recognize how popular he is, but I'm still the, you know, the king of, of show business. There's a lot of contentious topics surrounding travel to Las Vegas. And one of the biggest ones is resort fees. This is one of those things that almost everyone pretty much just accepts as a fact of life when going to Vegas. But my guest in episode number 21 had had enough of them and decided to fight back in a big way. Lauren Wolf is a Washington, D.C.-based lawyer and the founder of KillResortFees.com, a website dedicated to eliminating resort fees and teaching travelers how to get their resort fees refunded. Lauren and I covered a lot of ground in our conversation, and one of the points that I brought up is one that I hear commonly. Why not just suck it up and budget for the resort fees? And Lauren responded with a great point. At this point, I think most frequent travelers to Las Vegas know that every Vegas hotel is lying to you about the price of the room. But to me, the issue is that the hotels are lying to you. Why would you want to go to a place that is literally breaking the law to scam you. It's just, there's so many places to go in the United States and around the world that there's options to go that aren't robbing you. Right. So I guess my, my next question then obviously is, you know, what, what can a person do to not pay these resort fees that, you know, I, I looking on the website, which by the way is, is a fantastic website, very well laid out and, and answers a lot of these questions. But I mean, if, you know, what, what is, what is a person's option as far as, you know, dealing with the resort fees? I would say that, um, file a complaint with the Nevada attorney general. Um, and then if that doesn't get anywhere, cause it's likely not to based off of what people have told me, um, to dispute the resort fee with your credit card. Um, and specifically point out the Nevada deceptive trade practices act. It's against the law. Um, and your credit card will likely refund you. Like I said, my credit card refunded me and it was a Starwood, Starwood Amex. I mean, it's a hotel credit card. Um, and, you know, I think that they just don't have enough people disputing this. Any other, uh, if, if people are in the United States, um, 
The Nevada attorney general has not followed up on these complaints. As far as we know, I haven't heard of him ever following up on one and, and him. I'm referring to both the current Democrat and the previous Republican. We've never known anyone to successfully be able to fight a consumer complaint on resort seats in Nevada. However, almost every other state is processing the consumer complaints. The, really, the forms take 60 seconds to fill out. They're all online. Um, and you can file, like if you're from New York or if you're from North Dakota, just file with your attorney general in North Dakota or the New York attorney general. You can just do it in your home state if you're from another state in the United States. And so I guess the next question then is when I'm checking out of the hotel, when I walk up to the front desk on my last day and they say, thank you, Mr. Walker, here's your final bill. I can look at that and go, nope, I'm not paying those resort fees. I don't think that's going to get you anywhere, frankly. (laughs) And I do feel bad, honestly, for the front desk clerks who are, you know, not earning that much money and they have to deal with these people. They're certainly not the ones that set these um, prices and they probably would really like for you to have a great time. I do think you could ask politely and just say, you know, these fees are against the law. I don't think I should be paying them and I'll dispute them later. So you could refund me now or I will definitely get the money back later. But at the end of the day, the person who's earning probably just above minimum wage, who's working at many of these desks in Las Vegas, is probably not the best person to take your anger out at. close out the first ever Jeff Does Vegas clip show, we're going back to episode number 48 and my conversation with Vin A. from the Bronx Wanderers. Vin and I had a great chat about the history of the band, the trials and tribulations of working with family, and their move from Bally's to the Link to Harrah's. But by far, my favorite part of the conversation was having Vin take us behind the curtain to talk about producing a show in Las Vegas and explain the high turnover on Vegas shows. So these shows open up and they think that the minute they open, they're going to start selling a thousand tickets on day one. Right. And that thing is that doesn't happen. Right. You need to, you need, you're, you have to plan on losing six months of, of losses. Yeah. Because you have to get word of mouth around town. You got to get a buzz with all the concierge people and all the people that sell the tickets. Vegas.com, tickets for the night, all the places that people go to get half off tickets tonight. You know, yeah. so, so on all the advertisements, oh, uh, type in this code, you get half off your price. So even when people say, oh, well, the show's $120, nine, 99 out of 100 people in that theater only paid $30 to see that show. 99 of 100, they're even getting a, a bigger deal from StubHub or some or Ticketmaster or some other show. Yeah. You know, even think about total rewards. When, when I look out at the room, I go, guys, how did we not turn a profit tonight? They go, well, 75 of those people paid $7 a ticket because right. they're in the total rewards program. So the minute you think that everybody's buying a full price ticket, it's just it's not true. And then if and then when you open immediately, how many shows right off the bat are great the minute they open? Yeah. Not many. Because again, you're gonna have lighting failures, you're gonna have sound failures, you're gonna have people rewriting the show, you're gonna have you know, you're constantly tweaking, constantly getting it ready. Our biggest fear was when we opened, we did a red carpet event in front of the entire town two weeks after we were here. Uh-huh. The lights were all still messed up. The sound was a disaster. Our costumes were in shambles. I looked at them and go, why the hell are we doing this red carpet right now? They go, because we need to get you in the paper. We need a buzz around town. No matter what happens, you need to do your best and just do your best. And we did our best. 
I, I'm telling you right now, there were some horrible moments that <laughs> happened that first <laughs> damn night. But, you know, after that, people are coming back and saying, oh, my God, we saw you three years ago. We saw you now. It's, oh, my God, it's a totally different show. I go, yeah, yeah because in my mind, I wish you saw me six months into my residency as opposed to two weeks into my residency. And again, you know, it's, it's like you said before, I've seen so many shows come and go. So as impatient as I am and I want things to get better and be better, I have to always keep in mind, dude, I'm still here. You know, three years later, we just celebrated a thousand shows two months ago. It's like, it's like unheard of. Yeah. You know, so. And you guys have made the move too. I mean, you guys started off at Bally's. We started small. Yeah. How big was the room at Bally's that you guys were Oh my in? God. It was like 200, 200 max. Yeah. It's a really small room. And now the Matt Franco theater here at the Link. 600. Yeah. It's like massive. But we told them coming into this room, listen, uh, <laughs> there's no way we're selling 600 seats a night. Yeah. They go, we would never expect you to sell 600 seats a night. But see, the problem, again, with back in the day Vegas versus, versus today Vegas, shows like Jubilee and all those shows back then, they would sell 1,500 seats a night. They Look at that theater at Paris that's like 1,500 seats. It's empty. Yeah. Dionne Warwick opened up in there. She couldn't sell 1,500 seats a night. Bang, left. Masters of Illusion, who is on TV every single night, couldn't keep that show open in that room. Yeah. So it's telling you there's a trend now. There's like a new trend in Vegas where you need to be in a 300 to 600 seat showroom and that's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. I mean, Wayne Newton, legend, legend, played with Frank Sinatra, all these guys. He's at, he's at Caesars Palace playing in Cleopatra's Bars. I think the maximum occupancy is 180 seats. Yeah. Baffling. But again, it's a cool thing because on when he plays, he's sold out every night. So it's got that cool thing where, dude, if you don't get your ticket two days before, that show's sold out. So it creates a demand in a way. Whereas the hard thing for me, you asked me before, do you like playing here or playing on the road better? Is it disheartening to walk out six nights a week and see a 600-seat theater and see only 300 people in it? Yeah, a little bit. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a little weird. You know, like we're no, we, we know we're growing I'm not disillusioned thinking, well, we should be selling 600 seats a night. You know, we're great. I know we're not like that. But, you know, when I go out on the road and I play, say, a 3,000-seat performing arts center, sold out. You know, because the word around the country, we were killing it for like 15 years. So it's, it's tough, you know. You don't know what the tickets are being sold at. All the theaters in all over town are all messed up. I mean, my good friend Tenors and Rock. I love them. They're like my best friends in town. They started at Harris in a 500-seat thing, and now they went to Planet Hollywood. Again, because Caesars moved everybody around. We got moved around. They got moved around. They turned the entire upstairs valley thing into a magic room. So it was part of this whole move. It had nothing to do with their show moving there. But again, it's like we started small, and we're going in this upward trajectory and I'm hoping we can continue that upward trajectory. If you've enjoyed listening to all these clips of some of my favorite interviews and you want to hear more, I'll have links to all the full episodes in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. Or you can search them out in the archives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.
And that wraps up another episode of the podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at JeffDoesVegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes, show notes, and a link to the official Jeff Does Vegas YouTube channel. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 69 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast.